Jay, I hope you're okay with the coughing. Yeah, it's, my asthma's been exceptionally bad. Uh, I had a slight cold while we were in Vic Falls, and then uh, and then since then, the asthma's How just Vic been Falls? bad. Vic Falls was awesome. It always is. Um, and this time we were there in the You've rainy season, just after rainy season. Yeah, we've been once. And this time we were there just, a, just after rainy season um, ended for that part of Zambia. So the falls were just massive, and, and you go and you walk on the... They have this little bridge, which is a little sketchy, but um, probably wouldn't be legal in the U.S. Or, or U.K., I'm sure. But they have this bridge that you can walk out onto and you feel the spray just really come up into your face. And it's and you get drenched. It's not just like a little bit of mist. It's like you get completely drenched. You walk out soaked like you've just been for a swim. And it's, it's always something spectacular. A great way to experience the power of nature. Yeah. I don't remember... I don't remember much from Vic Falls because we went ages ago. But the thing I do remember is that we paid someone, like some random person, to, to skip the queue for That's buying so bread. Um, and so we brought a loaf of bread for lunch and and then the baboon stole the loaf of bread. Oh, wow. The baboons are really aggressive. I remember last time Amina had a Fanta. There was this really big male baboon that at the time was much taller than she was because she was pretty small. And it was a big male baboon so it was it was huge and it was sort of walking towards her and and my dad sort of like put himself between them and and we sort of rushed towards the park gate um because it can't go inside the little um building that you enter um through and the park ranger told us that they actually know fanta i mean okay that's actually um perfect example of how human interaction with nature can actually be dangerous but um, they know Fanta because of the number of tourists that come through the area. So when they see Fanta, they get really aggressive. And that was pretty scary. Yeah, baboons are monkeys. They're probably pretty smart, right? Primates, yeah. They are. They're very smart. And, um, and they like Fanta. And I don't blame them. And bread. Yeah, and bread. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Fighting Failure, the podcast where we discuss the solutions to the climate crisis this episode is all about lobbying and subsidization. And I know that sounds boring, but before you click off and go listen to Joe Rogan or something, let me tell you like what this actually is. Lobbying in the modern world is essentially like bribery and corruption. And subsidization is a way of the government using your money to make things cheaper that you might not necessarily buy. So there's definitely a lot to be unpacked here. And both of these things, lobbying and subsidization, can go both ways, both positively and negatively. They can be tools for positive social change, or they can be ways of keeping the status quo. Uh, I'm your host of this episode, Oscar Archibald. And I'm your co-host, Hisham Kanan. So I think lobbying and subsidization probably both deserve a bit of an introduction as to like what on earth they are. And even I, after an hour of research, uh, am not totally up to date on what exactly lobbying is because it's such a shady business they don't you know there's no like wiki how article on how to lobby the government but uh, basically how it works is this industries like coal oil natural gas dairy livestock farming you know big tobacco big food all of these sorts of companies uh, and industries have certain interests and they want the laws to align with those interests to make it easier for them to do business and ultimately to make a profit and so these uh, industries will often band together to fund lobby groups uh, or political pressure groups. And those lobby groups hire lobbyists, which is just, it's a job. And those lobbyists then lobby the government. 
So the word lobbying, I, I looked it up. It, the et etymology is really interesting. It actually comes from in uh, the UK, in the House of Lords and the House of Commons, which are the two houses of Parliament, before they would the, the before the MPs would enter for their debates or leave for their debates, they would be waiting around in the lobbies. And that's when, you know, people might come up to them and try to persuade them of a certain political opinion. And so lobbying in itself, if you look up the definition on like the Parliament UK website, for example, it's not going to tell you that, oh, this is when big tobacco pays a bunch of money and bribes politicians to make uh, advantageous laws. No, lobbying in itself is just about, um, you know, using your right as a private citizen to talk to your elected representatives. However, this means that uh, ultimately industries who have a lot of money take that very far. And if you have more money, you can actually afford to be in London all the time and to spend your day hassling members of parliament or to pay them. Uh, often there's a lot of money involved. So, for example, I think £300 is the threshold for how much you can uh, basically pay or bribe a member of parliament without them having to disclose the bribe. And so um, you could say buy them tickets to come see you know, horse racing and then chat them up while they're there. And so there's a lot of sort of shady business that goes on, but that is ultimately what lobbying is. And having, uh, hopefully, what the lobbyists hope is that having done all this schmoozing and boozing with the members of parliament, that then when they stand up in parliament, um, they will make a speech or, or vote for a legislation or propose legislation that is uh, aligns with the interests of the lobby group. And it should be noted that, I mean, that, that, that lobbying, as well as, subsidization um, can both be really good tools to, to uh, push people in a, well, I don't want to say good, but in a direction that might be more beneficial to the environment and to the public. But like Oscar just mentioned, it's, it's very often used uh, by big companies and by the government to push agendas that really um, match their needs and their wants and often corruption comes into it. And they're, yeah, they're profiteering interests, really. So when we talk about lobbying in this episode, we're basically sort of referring to sort of, I guess, what you call industrialized lobbying, um, which is, you know, uh, a proper setup system of of industries and profits and money. Uh, whereas, you know, like signing petitions, for example, is another form of lobbying, but that's, that's quite different in its scope. So we're going to be talking about sort of business lobbying or interest group lobbying as our main sort of point. But, you know, a great example of lobbying goes going both ways is the Widlow Project, which we mentioned in the last episode. And I believe Biden recently, it's, it's an oil pipeline in Alaska, is it, that Biden recently approved? Yeah, he just, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. And so the proponents, lobbyists of this oil pipeline would have been the oil interest groups, the people who want to build the pipeline, the people who want to keep oil as a source of energy in the US. And they would have been the ones lobbying the government, ultimately successfully, to build this pipeline and, and provide the permit for the pipeline to be built. Uh, whereas on the other hand, another form of lobbying was there was this change.org petition that got millions of signatures, um, which was uh, asking Biden not to back the Willow Project and to stop it. And so that's lobbying go going both ways. But I think that's a great example of how the sort of political business industry lobbying has a lot more power over politics because they were ultimately successful in this case and so many other cases that we'll talk about later. He showed you want to give us a quick introduction to what a subsidy is. So a subsidy, like Oscar mentioned, is when the government uses taxpayers' money to to decrease the price of certain goods and services in the country. Um, so a, a, a good example of this, and I'm just trying to you know think local, is um, 
FISM, which is a program in Malawi. It's Farm Input Subsidy Program, I believe. FISM or Farm Input Subsidy something. Um, and what they do is they subsidize um, different farm inputs. So that's your fertilizers, maize seed, and other um, farm inputs. Generally, not that great for the environment. And what this does is this makes these farm inputs very, or not very, but much more affordable to the general public so that when they're considering, because I mean, I think it's like 76% of Malawi's population are subsistence farmers, and maybe more than that, some uh, close to 80% are subsistence farmers. And so when all those farmers are thinking about what to buy for, for what inputs to buy for that year, they immediately go to those products. So they're maize seed, which is genetically modified, um, and so sort of promotes the monocropping of of maize and your fertilizer, which can um, create well, I mean, can lead to eutrophication of water systems. So that's overabundance of algae, um, which can lead to high turbidity in water and all types of problems. And then can also lead to the overstimulation of um, microbial growth, which also depletes soil nutrients, which are already very sparse in Malawi. And I think one of the reasons that the government really pushes for these things that that they're they're traditionally used here, or not traditionally, but since colonial since colon, colonialism, they've been widely used and accepted here. But I think one of the reasons that the government pushes for it, other than just the sake of sticking to tradition, is that ton of people in parliament and in different parts of government are actually stakeholders, and a lot of people in those guys' family, if they're not even direct stakeholders are stakeholders for the fertilizer companies, for the seed companies, etc. And so they get mass, or, or even for the import and export of, um, of different products. So they're creating business for themselves by pushing uh, consumption upon the public. So that's an example of, of subsidies being used um, more negatively. But there's a lot of good ways that subsidies can be used as well to push more, a more pro-climate agenda on the public, I mean, it's it's incentivization, uh, sort of. So yeah, I mean, that's sort of uh, cliff notes of uh, subsidization. Yeah, excellent. And so uh, that's the introduction. So now we're going to move on to the problems specifically with these different things. So um, let me just stretch. Ooh, my shoulders are really sore. Ah. All right. Wow. Okay. Have you been rowing? Uh, no, I've. I've was doing some exercise and I was probably lifting too heavy because uh, um, I was doing squats but I was like holding the dumbbells like above my shoulder I see. rather than like down by my sides yeah so it's probably a bit too tense anyway it's fine I'll survive the first problem is that lobbying is corrupt undoubtedly there have been many reports of corruption and whether or not uh, the, the definition of lobbying is that is legal and not illegal whereas you know just like bribery is illegal but I think it's undoubt, uh, undoubtedly true that a lot of, or at least in common parlance, what we think of as corruption, a lot of modern lobbying would fit the bill of that. So generally how lobbying is done is by lobbyists somehow financially influencing lawmakers to vote, I've written wit there and just but with their interest, rather than, and it's often an opposition, that's why they have to lobby, their rather than the interests of the citizens they were elected to represent. So... That's a crucial part of this is that if there weren't that opposition, if the interests of big tobacco, for example, were the same as the interests of the citizens, there probably wouldn't need to be that difference 
that lobbying because the you know the interests would align. And so in that sense, it's often the case that lobbying goes against the interests of the people, or at least the sort of big industry lobbying. Now, if we think about like you know small political pressure groups, there's you know there's a political pressure group for just about every single political position, but these sort of big lobbying companies have to use their influence because they want to try and change the course of the law away from, I guess, what you could say was supposed to be. In the UK, as I mentioned, it's up to £300 that they can give um, without the conflict of interest having to be disclosed by the uh, by the members of parliament. But even so, if you look at a lot of the bills that come through parliament, I feel like it's it, there's, there's quite an obvious conflict of interest that hasn't been disclosed in terms of the people working on those bills are... Uh, are receiving uh, money. For example, uh, there was a, I saw a clip recently of a discussion in the House of Commons. I don't know how recently it occurred, but this member of parliament stood up and he, and he gave this thing about uh, this sort of rousing sp- short speech about how we're going to back British farming. Um, and that back British farming is actually a campaign by the NFU, the National Farmers Union, which is the biggest sort of animal agriculture lobby uh, in the UK. And they sort of set set up this whole back British farming hashtag back, back British farming thing, and and then you see this guy standing up in Parliament talking about back British farming. I, I think it, it feels quite obvious that there's some sort of lobbying going going on there that he's then giving the speech that is right on the talking points of the farmers union, um, for example. And so ultimately, this lack of transparency with up to three hundred pound gifts being allowed with no no uh, no transparency ultimately leads to dishonesty. So there was uh, actually very recently, I was reading this news story in the BBC that revealed that um, um, it was, I think possibly it was the Times that did the original reporting, but they they basically, they talked to an MP pretending to be a lobbyist and secretly filmed the conversation. And what what the, the MP was making a bunch of jokes and he was essentially implying that companies will pay more than 300 pounds and that he knows they're paying more than 300 pounds for example i think that the one he mentioned was going to see horse racing and they would pay for tickets that are easily worth more than 300 pounds to see horse racing but they would say to him that it was only worth 295 pounds and so and so i think he was making some dumb joke about how oh you know it's always cost 295 pounds um, which is just below the limit and so i think in my opinion this sort of dishonesty and essentially giving a sort of valuable experience or tickets or anything like that to the MP in exchange for certain political actions, that feels to me a very similar to bribery. Um, and bribery is, is, of course, just paying someone to use their power illegally. Uh, one of the problems here is that, I mean, although it's not technically bribery, we're letting politicians allow personal interest to come into their decision-making and personal interest should never come into the decision-making of a politician because politicians are supposed to represent the people. So it's always supposed to be a, you know, public opinion and speaking on behalf of the public, not speaking on behalf of the private and on behalf of themselves uh, for their own profit. So although it's not technically bribery, uh, it's, it comes really close and it's, uh, it's definitely a little shady and not, not ideal. I'll put it like that. In the, in the U S and and it's same in the UK as well. Actually, there's this concept called the revolving door, and this this essentially describes how individuals, um, so you know, uh, basically rich rich business people, will often switch uh, between commercial and legislative roles in the same sector. 
So this, you know, for example, they could work um, as a politician, as a member of parliament, a member of the Conservative Party, say, and, you know, be a member of parliament for a parliamentary sitting, and then go in and work as the head of lobbying at the National Farmers Union, for example. And so this leads to big conflicts of interest because people who are members of parliament, they all have good networks that, you know, their networking skills will be up to scratch and they have a lot of contacts who they can speak to. And so essentially they're using the, the influence that they gained from their time as an elected official to then promote the private interests of a certain company. And this happens across the world, Australia, US, UK, um, where where ex, ex basically ex-ministers, ex-MPs, ex-senators, you know, Congress people will then work and make massive amounts of money in lobbying because they can use their contacts from the time that they were in government. And so <laughs> I think that definitely feels very dishonest as a, as a way of you know, making a gain from the time that they were in government. Uh, one other thing to mention about the U.S. system is that thinking about elections in the U.S., there are there's far more money in elections in the U.S., I think it would be fair to say. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's tons of money just pours into elections, and you have private and you have public funding. And, I mean, although you have um, a fair amount of, of, of public funding for campaigning for all different levels of government, I mean, you have tons of private funding, which then, which is sort of, then has to be made on, on like, illicit promises and the hopes that whatever this politician is going to do is going to benefit you. So if you run and you get a large sum of money um, as part of your election campaign from, like, an oil company, you're sort of indebted to them unofficially so that throughout your term you have to pass legislation and, and, and give support to that company in return. So it's it's sort of, I mean, it, it comes into that 100% comes into um, uh, elections, yeah. Compared to the UK, the US just has bigger campaigns and that's because there are fewer restrictions. So for example, I think, well, it's 2023 and even last year, you know, the Republicans were gearing up for their 2024 presidential campaign, which is not to the end of 2024, so it's still not for two years um, almost. And whereas in the UK, I'm not, I don't know the exact specifics, but you're not really allowed to campaign until like a few weeks before the election or something like that. And then you have to take down all your campaign posters immediately afterwards. And so I, th I do feel like I remember from 2019 when we had the last general election that there was advertising, for example, by the by the parties, you know, bus stops or on YouTube or stuff like that. But it was fairly minimal. Uh, I'm not I don't watch TV, so I don't. I don't but I don't think political advertising is allowed on TV. I may be wrong, but compare that to the US where... You get tons. I mean, you can't... You can almost never turn on the TV, even in Vermont, like... Or, you know, you turn on the iPad, and, I mean, when, when we're based in Vermont and we go into Maine for a week just to visit, and you turn on um, your Wi-Fi on your iPad to, like, watch something on YouTube, and you open YouTube, and the first ad that pops up is someone running for you know, whatever, governor, there's always something. And, and, and even in Vermont, sometimes you get ads from New York and, and New Hampshire, and you get the most random, and, and it's just, it's, it's so um, in your face. And it's, it's essentially, I mean, it's... Yeah, so um, I agree that the, the US system for political advertising means that there's so much money in advertising 
that campaign financing and donations to different politicians' campaigns is a massive way for uh, vested interests to curry favour with legislators or legislators to be in the future. And I think the way the UK does it is much better, that um, political advertising is much less common. I think an interesting comparison that can be drawn here is tobacco advertising because it used to be the case that you know big tobacco, all the different companies would advertise on TV and um, then they would spend lots of money on marketing, but because everyone was advertising about the same amount, none of them actually had an advantage over the other by, by the fact that they were advertising. Then I think Tony Blair, I think it was, banned uh, tobacco advertising because tobacco is harmful. And so necessarily we ban, I mean, we haven't done that for fossil fuels yet, but necessarily uh, advertising across the world, mostly uh, tobacco advertising has been banned because it is deemed to be harmful and therefore we don't want tobacco companies to be able to advertise. However, in doing this, while I agree it was the right thing to do, he actually, it was a favour to big tobacco because not being able to advertise, all the tobacco companies were still on the same footing. None of them had an advantage of the other because they were all doing the same amount of advertising, which was zero. But now they were saving massive amounts of money that they were previously spending on marketing. And I think there's a parallel to be drawn between that idea and political advertising, which is that if political advertising is uh, made much, much smaller and there are strict limits placed on how much political advertising can be done and what media can be used for political advertising, then it's not like that advantages either party, unless it's a party that's useless and only runs on ads, in which case it's a bad thing anyway. And so it's you're not it's still a level playing field, except now there's not a massive way for companies to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to, you know, carry favor with politicians. Before we move on to uh, some specific examples of lobbying, I just want to give you an idea of how massive a business this is. So in the UK in 2007, um, the professional lobbying industry was estimated to be worth £1.9 billion. So if you think if you think that any sort of charity or petition can ever hope to match that, I don't think like Extinction Rebellion has £1.9 billion. Um, and so it gives you an idea of the massive scales that commercial and business interests have over grassroots initiatives, 1.9 billion pounds, employing 14,000 people. And this is 2007, it's probably grown since then. The report also suggested that some MPs are approached over 100 times a week by lobbyists. How many days in a week? Seven, that's that's a lot of being approached, uh, for sure, maybe 14 times a day or something. Um, and then in the, in the US, um, lobbying is an incredibly effective tool for business. And according to one study, it yields as much as uh, 22,000% returns on investment. So companies spend hundreds of millions of dollars on lobbying. Uh, and that, I mean, that, again, like that's such a large sum of money. Like there's no way that any environmental agency could lobby as effectively as that. So then it also comes down to money. And when money is made through perverse incentives, so then you're giving advantage to these people that maybe don't have the best best goals with their products other than to make as much money as they can at the benefit or demise of the environment. And I mean, so it's just, again, it's just like massive amounts of money are just being poured into to lobbying worldwide. I mean, in every country you have this. Envi environmental groups don't have a return on investment other than like the good of everyone in the whole world. That's not, they, they are sort of spending people's money once, whereas lobbyists that are working for enterprises will make the money back many times over. So let's just let's just give a few examples of specific case studies of lobbying. 
All right, but let's get on to these climate examples. So the first one is in the U.S., and it's the Inflation Reduction Act. So for those of you who don't know, the government is essentially... I, I don't know if this is... Is it subsidization of electric vehicles and solar panels, etc., other things that... Um, so climate-smart energy investments that are made by the public. And so basically it just makes um, a lot of green energy more affordable to the public. However... Um, the Democrats, uh, Democrats did not have a uh, majority in the Senate, um, which is split about 50-50. And Joe Manchin, who's a senator from West Virginia, opposed the bill as he has received massive lobbying from the coal industry. I mean, initially the investment was supposed to be $3.5 trillion that were going into this Inflation Reduction Act. And, it's, it, and because of his um, opposition of the act, it actually came down to $750 billion, which is a massive decrease and a, and a and a big loss. So it's still it's still the biggest uh, climate spending bill in the U.S. history. It's a land it, it's a landmark bill, but it, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a total misnomer, because although that is one of the goals of the bill, it's a very broad bill. It it is sort of the diluted version of the Build Back Better bill, which is what Biden originally wanted to pass. And because the Senate split exactly fifty Democrat, fifty Republican. They needed every single Democratic senator to be on their side passing the bill. And the one main Democrat who opposed the bill was a guy called Joe Manchin, as you were saying. And so not only has he received a lot of lobbying for the coal industry, he has, West Virginia is a big coal state, and that's, that's the state that he's representing. He has personal interests even in the coal industry. Um, it's, it's very com complex and very dodgy. Uh, he gains personally from trying to dilute this climate action and I think that's that's really sick that he's obstructing the democratic process and, and what is so obviously necessary for his own personal benefit. I mean, and the thing is, maybe it, maybe it was partially influenced by the public, because like you mentioned, I mean, it's a big coal state. Even in a coal state, like most people don't work in coal. But I mean, even if you're looking at the benefit of the people, an environmental win is one of the best things that can happen for the people in this. It's certainly a trade off. You know, coal as a source of energy is just totally economically unviable now. It's really expensive. It's really not very clean. And compared to sources like natural gas or now renewables like wind and solar are so cheap now. The U.S. government, there was, I watched a video, I think it was um, this great YouTube channel called Climate Town. Um, and he had a great, great video about um, coal and uh, this uh, this whole idea of clean coal, essentially, which was the coal industry was trying to promote um, because they, they knew that coal was really bad, but they wanted to try and find a way to make it clean. So the U.S. government poured massive amounts of money into a bunch of different research programs trying to find ways to make coal clean using different sorts of carbon capture or stuff like that. You know, it was, it was a massive thing that politicians are trying to you know promote clean coal, but it just didn't work out. Maybe they made one prototype that was really expensive. All this stuff with the, the sort of concept of like clean coal and clean oil and offsetting emissions by paying some other government to, to essentially count a portion of their um, forested land as your land, which then makes it, you know, it, it offsets some of the emissions. Like all that, that concept is, it's, it's, a, it's a farce and it, it's completely, I mean, it, it has, there's quite literally... No, it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make the energy green. It, it just gives you know, politicians an excuse to keep spending money on, 
on fossil fuels and it's it's just it's really it's a, it's a disgusting sort of way of of making it seem to the public like they actually care when what they're really doing is just trying to continue making those personal investments possibly because of lobbying just going back to that i mean it, it just it kind of all goes back to the influence of those industries like oil gas coal animal agriculture all different i mean there's so many groups that um have massive amounts of money that just they're able to lobby relatively in a relatively uncontrolled manner and get massive returns like we mentioned so the only reason that's being propped up by these government initiatives is you know any sort of carbon capture and storage it is only for the interests of the people making money from fossil fuels it's not good for the environment because you're still pulling oil out of the ground and stuff like that and we've talked before about how people are trying to trying to technology their way out of climate stuff when we just need to produce really and another example of coal is in the UK, Boris Johnson, I mean, this must have been, I think this was in 2021, approved plans for a new coal mine in Cumbria, despite uh, the fact that, uh, you know, he is the one who pushed forward the UK's net zero 2050 legislation and a lot of those projects, at least in name, if not in actual action. Um, and so there was massive backlash to trying to, to build a, a new coal mine, considering that, you know, we're against coal. We, the UK, you know, there was a period, I think, over lockdown where no coal was used at all for the first time in a very, very long time in the power grid. And so then to build a new coal mine with the excuses of, oh, uh, well, if we're gonna be using coal anyway, well, it may as well well um, come from here. What I, what I kind of hate about a lot of the COP is that it enables countries again to look like they're trying to make progress and then just blatantly lie. So they sign on to COP and everyone, it's like, hurrah, big you know win for the climate and everyone gets all excited and then you know, a month later, what, Biden's, uh, you know, okaying the Willow Project, and we have Boris Johnson, who, you know, former PM um, for the UK, okaying new coal mines, and it's just, it's it's all just a way of, of them appealing to the sort of, to those, I mean, the climate activists and people that are worried about the environment, it's just their way of making it seem, and a lot of people who don't understand it that well, it's just their way of making it seem like they're actually trying to make progress when really they they aren't and, and again it's that same thing um and often you know uh it's it's being lobbied so i mean it, it's hard to sort of work around on to subsidization subsidization the second part of this episode one of the simplest forms of subsidization is i guess you could call it indirect subsidization i'm not sure if that's a technical term but that's basically tax exemption so that i mean taxes can be used really effectively like you have sin taxes which can be put on not syntax. You have sin taxes, which can be, yeah. I mean, it sounds like syntax, like syntax error, but yeah. I mean, yeah. Sin, like S-I-N, taxes can be really effective way of, of discouraging like a lot of negative actions. So you can have syntax on things that threaten human health. You could put syntax on tobacco, for example. You could put syntax on oil and other fossil fuels. I mean, there's a lot of ways that, that taxes can be used effectively, but and, and often taxes are used in subsidization programs. And, and this can be, I mean, this can be good and this can be really bad. Another example of, uh, or a good example of tax exemption is, um, or not entirely, but is, is the Inflation Reduction Act, which, I mean, you get, what it really does essentially is offset some of the tax that you pay on certain products um, to encourage the purchase of, of climate smart technologies. And I mean, that's a, that's a great example of how tax, exe tax exemption can be used. 
um, often it can be used negatively and, and sometimes um, it's influenced by lobbying by big companies. Also, would you like to take us away on that point? So currently tax exemption for taxes like VAT. VAT is the thing that's most commonly exempt from tax because that's on individual products or services. Uh, one big thing that I think is really doesn't make much sense is that uh, air travel is almost always exempt from tax across the world, especially domestic air travel is is considered essential and therefore exempt from VAT, whereas this is done and as a result of this or partially as a result of this, it is cheaper to travel from London to Edinburgh on like EasyJet than it is to do it just by a train because of the, the difference in taxes. Now, I'm not sure if train tickets are VAT exempt. They might be as well. But even so, it doesn't really make sense that airplane tickets, domestic air travel especially, which can easily be accomplished by train instead, are free from VAT. Another example would be fuel duty. Now, I, I was reading an Economist article recently about the UK tax system and the fuel duty, I believe this is what I remember. It's possible I may be slightly wrong on the technical details. There is a fuel duty, a tax on fuel, but it hasn't been raised in such a long time that the, the actual, in real terms, um, it is decreasing. And if they raise the fuel duty to sort of keep it in line, it would um, be much more effective. And I think you could even argue that these days fuel duty is almost becoming a sort of sin tax, um, a bit like road tax. Yeah, I mean, really what, what we should be seeing is we should be seeing more sin tax placed on fossil fuels and more sin tax placed on... Fossil fuels is, is one of the main things. Syntax placed on, you could place syntax on meats, but I mean, different things that have really negative effects on the environment and then simultaneously be, 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 sub, uh, be subsidizing whatever else. So like electric vehicles, if you're doing that simultaneously, you're going to be uh, discouraging one thing and encouraging the other thing and you're going to get a big shift, which is not what we're seeing entirely. Yeah, the tax code really hasn't been updated for the modern climate era at all. The, on, the only thing that I, I have seen is um, electric vehicle subsidies or tax exemptions for electric vehicles. That's the main thing that I've seen that uh, the government has actually changed tax laws. But even then, I, I think it would be better, and Norway's actually realising this, that they had, you know, Norway had been incredibly successful at promoting electric vehicle adoption, but it's much better to have a public transport than electric vehicles because we've talked about it so many times, urban expansion, uh, electric vehicles have all the same problems as petrol, except pollution. And that's many problems. <laughs> I mean, subsidizing public transport would be a great step going forward. I mean, actually, what's happening is that, um, and, it's, and this is not, you know, it's, it, is, it is sort of subsidization, I guess, which is that in D.C., District of Columbia, in the, in the U.S., they're actually trying to um, make public transport, or I think at least bus transport, free free of charge within the um, within the district. So, I mean, that's a massive step forward if they can actually, uh, you know, approve that. But it's, it's not something that we're seeing on mass and it's something that we should be seeing much more of. I mean, moving on, direct subsidies are also really common. So, like we mentioned, FISM in Malawi, which is a farm input subsidy program, or FISP, is it FISP? Am I saying it wrong? Anyway, I think it's FISM. Let me check. What, what they do is they directly subsidize the the price of the cost of certain agricultural inputs so what they they're able to do is they're able to promote synthetic fertilizers and gm maize seeds which obviously we like i mentioned at the start has a ensues a number of problems for the environment um and is is straight out corrupt because they all have interest in 
um, the fertilizer companies, seed companies, and it's FISP, yeah, FISP, sorry, Farm Input Subsidy Program. Um, sorry, I've been saying it wrong. Like, again, you can't directly subsidize, and the problem is just that in either case, like, is, is I mean, subsidization, you know, where is it coming from? Is it, is it, is it genuinely for the people? Is it for the environment? Is it for big companies that, that are subsidizing or that are, sorry, lobbying you? Or is it, um, or is it for personal interest, purely personal interest? And that, that's why it's sort of, it's sort of hard to say. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's hard to draw the line and say like subsidizing, this is good subsidizing. This is bad. At the same time, the subsidization of synthetic fertilizers can be great for Malawians because I mean, it's, it's relatively affordable. It's, even more affordable when it's subsidized and I mean it helps them grow their crops but then there's a ton of negative you know implications so it's like it's it's really hard to draw fine lines and say is this is it corrupt is it you know is it based in your personal interest or is it based in the interest of the public and it's really hard to to pull that apart and so I think often governments take advantage of that and that's really where the problem lies is that governments are able to take advantage of that. One of the most egregious types of direct subsidies, I think, is agricultural subsidies. For example, you know, we've we've given out a lot of rightful praise to the European Union over the years now that we've been doing this podcast. But I think one of the areas where it, its climate policy really falls down is something called the common agricultural policy. And this is the way that the EU uh, does animal, uh, not animal agriculture, but all agriculture subsidies over the entirety of in the European Union, it's done centrally in this in this thing called CAP, um, and it's perhaps one of the most hotly contested and uh, and worst policies of the European Union. And it's been around for a very long time, but of course, agriculture lobbying like to keep it there because it it is one of the most generous uh, agriculture subsidy programs in the world, and it means that the EU has the highest uh, rate of agriculture subsidies in the world at. Um, almost $75 billion, and this chart looks quite old that I'm looking at, um, which is more than double the next biggest, uh, which is the US. So the, the level of subsidies is really high uh, in the EU, and a lot of those subsidies go towards things that are not necessarily helping the environment, like fertilizers uh, and uh, animal farming. The US, for example, has this really interesting and terrible program um, where they there was a certain time where it was started, where there was an excess of dairy. I think it was that they produced a lot of dairy for the war and then they didn't want to decrease the amount of dairy after the war that they were producing because they had invested in increasing the size of the stocks or whatever. Uh, in the US, the government essentially pays the dairy industry to produce way more dairy, way more milk than people actually want. And so every year the government buys all the excess milk from the dairy farmers at like a pre-agreed price so that they just producing this milk that nobody wants and they turn it into cheese and store it in massive underground caves so it's a bit of almost a sensation sensationalist news story at this point that did you know about the us's secret cheese caves but it's true that they they're, they're turning it into cheese because cheese keeps better but it's it's really ridiculous that this is just the extent that you know the, the dairy industry has this influence of the government that they're just buying milk that nobody wants just to protect U.S. farmers or something, I don't know. The meat industry as a whole um, and the animal agriculture industry receives huge subsidies despite the fact that it has an enormous and well-documented negative environmental and ecological impacts as well as 
health, negative health implications. Um, bacon is a class one carcinogen defined by the World Health Organization. Red meat, class 2A, was it 2B? I can't remember. But um, <clears throat> it's really harmful stuff, as we're beginning to learn. But it's still subsidized massively by taxes that everyone pays for. You can't choose where your taxes go, obviously. Plant farmers produce more nutritious, more environmentally advantageous food, but they receive a small proportion of the subsidies. I think, especially think about like fruit and veg, which are really healthy. Um, though the, barely any subsidies go to fruits and veg. I can't really read this chart because of colorblind. Maybe you can help me find the, w which color is fruit and veg. Um, given the massive subsidies on milk, I think it would make a lot of sense, given the terrible environmental impacts of dairy milk, to instead transfer the subsidies so that uh, milk alternatives like oat milk, soy milk, rice milk, almond milk can have price parity with uh, dairy milk so that people across all sort of income levels can make a choice of what type of milk they want to drink based on the environmental credentials or the health credentials rather than the fact that dairy milk is just cheaper. I mean, also in countries where the meat industry is, is l large and has a significant hold in the dairy industry too, I mean, obviously they're going to have a much greater ability to lobby um, their products and, to, and then that that makes governments more likely to subsidize their products. So that's why you see so much, it's like, that's why you see like in Australia, like meat is, you know, takes up a large chunk of their subsidy program. You see in the U.S. it's, it's fairly large. I mean, that's why you see it so much, uh, meat being subsidized is because a lot of countries have a, a fairly large industry based on it and, and it just has so much influence. It's, it's really hard to, to work around. You're listening to Fighting Failure. This is episode 43, all about subsidies and lobbying. It's part of a section on climate finance, a subset of season four, Beyond the Bottom Line. If you're enjoying this so far, sharing it with someone else would be a massive help. Now let's move on to the solutions. The number one thing that we, I mean, I feel like this has been mentioned a million times in various different episodes, is transparency. Uh, transparency. And transparency is important in so many walks of life. And, and in lobbying, it's incredibly important because we need to draw the line between lobbying and, <laughs> and bribery. And we need to be able to, I mean, people need to know um, about what's being lobbied for so that they are able to, you know, to, to make their statement in return to that. I mean, so it's like, it has to, it always has to be a two-way street and it has to be, there has to be transparency in everything that the government does. It's, it's, it's crucial. Yeah, which is why things like the Freedom of Information Act are so important. So, I mean, democracy should, should ban lobbying or not ban lobbying, but... Legislators should not be allowed to receive gifts from anyone. Um, as public servants and no, definitely not. They are often already paid exorbitant salaries uh, from the taxpayer, so it's easier to err on the side of transparency. And I know this means that we'd be outlawing things like a little kid giving an apple to their MP, you know, when they're knocking at the doors or whatever. But I think it's just much safer to err on the side of, you know, these people just cannot accept gifts just because that's yeah. what we need to preserve democratic integrity. And you know, I'm sorry that I have to refuse your nice card that this little 10-year-old has given me. Well, I mean, I don't think it has to... It obviously doesn't have to go that far. I mean, that's that's not lobbying, so that's... But the thing is, is that, that sort of interested lobbying and lobby groups thrive 
by using the same laws that allow you know um, people that allow private citizens to talk to their MPs, and they're using the same st- structure politically. Yeah, I mean, but obviously you can't you can't ban public access to your MPs and to your representatives. So what has to happen is just that there has to be a ban on that private investment. Like there has to be some sort of legislation to prevent that. No, I think I think in fact we need more more public access to legislators and and local representatives should be more open to their citizens rather than a hundred times a week being approached by a lobbyist. I think that would that would make more sense for sure. And and that sort of leads nicely on to the to the next thing, which is better citizen involvement. In lieu of lobbying from private companies, we could instead promote citizen involvement in decision making. For example, a few uh, there have been a few trials of citizens' assemblies, which is where like some random citizens are p- picked, and they, on weekends they go and they meet with other citizens who may be from all walks of life and from different parts of the political spectrum. Yes, political spectrum. But when you actually have people just talking together, they can come to some quite reasonable solutions to different issues that are proposed um, from a sort of more citizen perspective. And there, I think there are lots of ways that citizens could become more involved in the representative democracy um, rather than stuff being done at the high level in Westminster through lobby groups. There has to be power to the people. So, I mean, it has to be, if, if we're going to have private companies um, lobbying, there has to be, you know, the public has to be able to lobby equally. And I mean, like, there, there just has to be that. Uh, when the public can't, when the public isn't heard, um, that's when you have problems because the government is for the public. The government's not for themselves and the government's not for the private sector. So there has to be, and this is one of the things that you guys can do, and like the the biggest thing that you, that you guys can do is is be involved in lobbying, and it's it's not necessarily just pure activism or saying save the turtles or whatever. It, it's 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 talking to your government, and I mean, and, and and it can be hard, but you have to really we have to break that barrier, and just we have to create a system where where we as citizens are able to contact, you know, our government. And um, tell them what our needs are and our wishes are, because I mean, if if we don't have the power to lobby, then government's lost its purpose, right? So I mean, that's it's 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 essential. Another point that I was mentioning before is a uh, uh, pa- uh, passing lips to reduce the scope of political campaigning, advertising, um, reducing campaign spending, and there's a scope for politically minded campaign donations. <clears throat> and lastly, subsidization, uh, and this is perhaps easier than lobbying because. If you reduce subsidies, you can just do that when you pass the budget. You can reduce subsidies. Not like you, you, but like the chancellor of the exchequer or, or the president or the legislature in whatever country you're in can change the tax code and they can change who they're subsidizing. I, I think that countries should strive to immediately remove all subsidies for animal agriculture, air travel, oil, gas, combustion vehicles. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hard to remove all of it because it's it's just... I mean, it's, it's general access and, and just from an anthropocentric viewpoint, I mean, it, it's in some of it is what the public needs. Um, so, I mean, t- to entirely remove sub- subsidization would be would adversely affect the, the public. But I mean, to remove some of that sub- subsidization and discourage that and then simultaneously be um, subsidizing and then put in that the, the money that you've saved into subsidizing another product that's, you know, more climate friendly. I, I don't like that term, but I'll use it could sort of start to create that shift that we need to see it and it's it's you need to have both you need to have you need to start to discourage one while you discourage while you encourage the other and that's when you get that shift so we need that incentivization via subsidization we need an incentivization tax reductions are one of the best ways we can do that um and tax increase so i mean syntax putting syntax on things eventually i mean not immediately but as you sort of remove those subsidies 
getting to the point where we're able to put syntax on on fossil fuels and on meat. I mean, I think it's already on fossil fuels in the majority of countries, but sort of being able to increase that and, and put that there so that we're really discouraging those um, more negative products and creating that shift. I mean, that's what we need to see. That's what government should be doing is, is f facilitating that shift because it's really hard to make as a, as a, as a citizen, as a, as, you know, a part of the public, right? You're just trying to make the decision that's healthy for you generally and um, B is going to save you money because obviously money doesn't grow on trees and we don't have infinite money. So it's, it's about governments helping us in that process and in that shift and getting us into a place where we're able to do what we need to do. Yeah, subsidies should be a tool to make things that are not so accessible more accessible. And I, I don't think that subsidizing a meat, dairy, uh, air travel uh, is necessarily the best way to go about that. And I think, yeah, we should absolutely redirect the subsidies, remove the subsidies for the bad things that are being subsidized and subsidize those alternatives, like plant-based alternatives to animal products, um, subsidizing train travel so that it, it's a more economical option than air travel, things like that, making making the the government has the power to make the environmentally friendly option the cheaper option. And as soon as that's the case, there will be a mass switch to those more environmentally friendly options that will significantly reduce the the carbon that's being emitted from certain countries that do make that change. With that, um, thank you, everyone. If you got this far, thank you for listening. Um, we'd really appreciate it if you share the podcast with other people because podcasts don't have an algorithm. That's the only way that other people get to learn about, about the environment and stuff like that. So that would be really nice. Um, and we'll see you next month. Goodbye. Yep. All right, guys. Take care. Finding Failure was written uh, this week by Oscar Archibald, host Oscar Archibald, co-host Sham Kanan, uh, produced and published by Fighting Failure. See you next month. <laughs>